Hey y'all, it's Rima. So this week, I'm handing off the show to our producer, Phoebe Untermann. She's got a story that gets into our relationship with work, and she explores an idea that I'd never heard before, but found super fascinating, and think you will too. All right, here's Phoebe. In 2021, Adam was working as a service manager at a bank in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and he was having a rough morning. So it's nonstop busy. It's just me working in the drive-thru with all four lanes full, cars wrapped up around the parking lot to the street. He worked for a big corporate bank that had laid off a lot of its employees during the pandemic. Adam's branch was severely understaffed. Plus, somebody had called out that day which is how Adam ended up manning four drive through lanes by himself, toggling between customers. By the time a customer would reach the front of the line, they'd be pissed. People would say stuff about how ridiculous it was that they had to wait. Or like, oh, so you guys sure are busy, huh? And you have a headset on, so they're like right in your ear. So he's getting these snarky comments, one after another, and then somebody would be, like, completely irate. Like, this is effing ridiculous. This is why I hate this place. You guys are just the absolute worst, and it's stuff that's out of your control, but then they take it out on you. And as each customer sent their paperwork or deposit slip in one of those plastic capsules through the vacuum chute, each time it slammed down right next to him with a loud thud that shook the desk. This is just so ridiculous that I had to wait this long. Yeah, I'm so sorry. It's just me at the moment. This is why I hate this place. Between the irate customers and the sensory overload. I could feel myself becoming really stressed. I wanted to say a lot of things to that customer and the rest of the customers that I knew I wasn't allowed to say. He kept telling himself he just had to make it to lunch. Then someone would come cover him and he could get a break. But at 11, he got an email saying no backup was coming. At noon and then one, still no backup. And still a longer and longer line of customers. As each one came through, his mind raced with all the things that could go wrong and how that would back up the line even more. And I felt my chest get tight. I started getting like a fast heartbeat and it got to where I kind of just had to like stop and like think to myself, I'm like, like, am I like physically okay right now? Like, am I having a heart attack? He was in the middle of a transaction, but he abruptly stopped talking and turned off his headset. His hands were sweaty and he was getting a little dizzy. So he gripped the desk to stabilize himself. I kind of just took a few deep breaths and I did feel like my chest kind of loosen up a little bit. My heart kind of slowed down just a little bit. I'm like, okay, I think this is probably more, I'm just getting really stressed. He was having a panic attack. And in that moment, a new thought floated through his brain. Even if it's not a heart attack, like this, this isn't okay. Like either way, I shouldn't feel like this. What is happening when I'm at work isn't okay. I'm Phoebe Untermann, and you're listening to This is Uncomfortable. You might be able to relate to Adam, being in the middle of work on a day so bad that you just feel like a cog in the corporate machine, weighed down by the unrealistic pace you're required to keep, or the way a customer or a manager talks to you. A day where the company's problems fall on your shoulders and feel like your responsibility. 
When most big companies' priority is profit and their shareholders, what do you do when they keep escalating the demands? Demands that take a toll on your body and mental health. We live in a society that often prioritizes the grind, where if you work yourself to the bone, go as hard as possible to prove your worth, you'll be rewarded. But when that becomes the norm, it can leave people in a particular position. Do you follow the voice in your head that says, work harder, go faster? Or is there another option? On today's show, we look at what happens when Adam made the choice to hit pause, to slow down. Adam started working at the bank as a teller when he was 21. It was his first grown-up office job. The pay was decent. It started at around 15 an hour. Over the next few years, he worked hard and was seen as a good employee. He was rewarded with promotions. He became a lead teller and then service manager, eventually making about 20 an hour. The best part was his coworkers. They went to each other's weddings and had baby showers at work where everyone went in on gifts. It was kind of like a family atmosphere. Like, we knew each other very well. We knew a lot of, like, details about each other's lives. He liked his job. It wasn't until 2016, three years into it, that things took a turn. That's when the bank got in some trouble with the federal government. To protect Adam, we're not naming the bank, but you've definitely heard of it. From that point on, Adam noticed the company cutting back when it came to hiring. Not laying people off. But they just weren't really replacing everybody as they left. As work got harder, he had less energy when he got home for his three rescue dogs, playing drums, hanging out with his wife. And things only got worse when the pandemic hit. The bank shuttered smaller branches in Cedar Rapids and focused their energy on a bigger, busier branch that had a drive through That's where Adam was eventually transferred. At the bigger branch, he had more tellers reporting to him. And with COVID came a ton of new procedures and meetings, along with even more customer demands, as people lost jobs, got stimulus checks, refinanced their mortgages. So his already overwhelming daily tasks just mushroomed. They went from being pretty busy to just extremely busy because of this extra demand from customers in general. Usually, as the service manager, Adam was behind a desk doing manager stuff, tracking money, employee performance, paperwork. But with so much customer influx, he was now mostly in the teller line or at the drive through Management basically told him they wanted him to do both jobs now, helping customers and helping tellers help their customers. It's almost like I got a demotion. Like, my job responsibility just essentially became just help the customers. It was so busy, Adam barely had time for bathroom breaks or grabbing food and water. At the beginning, everyone thought this was temporary, that it would be a couple months of craziness and then everything would go back to normal. So early on, his bosses let his manager responsibility slide. But that didn't last. It soon became clear that they expected him to essentially do both jobs now, but like forever. So I'm doing a lot of their responsibilities And again, not getting paid any extra for it. He was still making $20 an hour, less than the service manager he was training. Six months into the pandemic and all the ensuing chaos at the bank, Cedar Rapids got trampled by a really bad storm. 140 miles per hour winds, massive trees ripped out of the ground and roofs blown off buildings. 
On top of everything else, Adam and his coworkers were now also scrambling to deal with the damage to their homes and yards. Some of his coworkers were hit pretty bad by the storm. So he was now filling in, working every day and even some overtime. And this is when his resolve to just keep powering through it all started to crack. So much so that I was starting to make some pretty significant errors at work. Errors he'd never made before. Honestly, it was kind of like rookie mistakes. Huge rookie mistakes, like giving a customer $1,000 without processing it. And so then that's where I think I started realizing, like, I wasn't able to keep up with it. He'd reached his breaking point. He started thinking, I can't keep working like this, but what can I do? It was also around this time that Adam started to pay more attention to one of his coworkers. This coworker, we'll call her Joan, was known for working really slowly. If a customer came up and they had an issue going on and it was going to take 10 minutes to fix it, they weren't like rushing through trying to get it done. They just kind of accepted that like this Mm. thing is going to take a little bit of time and that's just how it is. And if the person behind them has to wait, then so be it. Back when Adam was newer at the bank and trying to work his way up and prove himself, he was honestly kind of annoyed by Joan. He would get impatient with her and he found himself picking up her slack. In the time she would help one customer, he could deal with like four or five. Because she didn't rush, she was always dealing with these huge lines of customers. Now, during this busy time, they started to talk more. She'd been at the bank for more than 30 years and had been through recessions and layoffs and all kinds of things before. And she'd seen how the bank responded or didn't. She said as expectations piled on, she decided, well, no, I won't meet those. I guess I just understood like how she got to the point of going at her own pace and doing things the way she does because like, if you're having to deal with all that stuff for such a long time, I, it becomes a lot to deal with. So instead of trying to keep up with it all, I think you just kind of accept it and just do what you can. All the time he'd been working, Adam had just thought, well, if the boss says jump, you've got to ask how high, right? He hadn't really considered that what Joan was doing was an option to just slow down and unburden yourself like that. But suddenly, under all the stress, her slowness no longer bothered him. It was actually kind of nice. It felt like she was doing as much as she could do and not worrying if it matched what the bank was pretending she had the capacity to do. Next to Joan, he could see exactly how unreasonable the expectations were. She was working at a human pace. He felt like he was fast-forwarding, like a robot. And he started thinking, what if I was more like Joan? What if I just did what was actually reasonable and let the rest go? Let the bank's understaffing issues be their problem, not mine. If they're having me do so many things that there's just not enough time in the day to do it all, it's really kind of unfair for it to be my responsibility to get it done. Adam didn't know it then, but what he was mulling over, slowing down to a human pace instead of a robot pace, it's actually something workers have been doing for a very long time. Sabotage, kakani, slow down, maintaining the stint, restriction of output, the conscious withdrawal of effort. This is Toby Higby. He's a professor of labor studies at UCLA and can recount centuries of labor history totally offhand. There's all sorts of ways that people would describe 
this process. This process Toby's talking about, slowing down, is sometimes a tactic used as part of a formal strike. But sometimes it's also an alternative to launching a strike, a thing workers do on their own in an informal way, often just one worker at a time. Well, as long as there have been workers, there have been workers who resisted the speed up, workers who slowed down on the job, the laborers who built the pyramids. Under chattel slavery, slaves resisted people who worked in manual labor jobs and construction, digging canals, lumberjacks, working on the railroad. Whenever they could, they would moderate their labor. The desire to reserve energy for yourself, especially if you're a manual laborer, is such a fundamental part of working that the word sabotage, according to folklore, actually comes from French peasant workers who stuck their wooden clogs, called sabots, in their machines. They would throw their wooden shoe into the machinery to wreck the machine and therefore to stop production. This kind of sabotage happened again and again. Luddites in England smashed the looms of new knitting mills. Wheat harvesters would jam up their threshing machines. Toby says it's hard to know how widespread these activities were, but you can see the effect of them in the way managers responded to workers' slowdown efforts. Managers basically tried to make slowing down impossible by inventing systems to force workers to keep the company's preferred pace. One example is what's called the piece rate system. Management would set the pay rate based on a piece rate, so how many items you produced. By starting to pay workers per item produced instead of by the hour, if workers tried to slow down, they'd be penalized because slowing down meant producing less, and then they'd earn less. Sometimes management would even do this sneaky thing where they'd bring in a really fast worker to set a new, faster pace. And once all the workers caught up to that pace, management would just lower the rate per piece. So workers never really received the benefits of working faster. Only their bosses did. In fact, the assembly line was created in part to control workers' pace. Take the assembly line of a meatpacking plant, for instance. Each worker does the same cut over and over and over again. So when you're doing that, You don't really have much power over the speed of the line because the piece of meat's coming, it's coming, it's coming. You can't really slow it down. You could see the contrast in workers' power in the very same plant. In the area where workers actually kill the animals, they were working together. So they would call slow strikes all the time to protest things they were unhappy about. Whatever it was, the line was too fast. They fired their friend. The foreman was asking them for kickbacks and bribes, and they could call a quickie strike and just immediately shut down production until the problem was solved. The slowdown strike is a more spontaneous alternative to a formal strike, which often requires a lot of labor and planning. So slowdowns can be more accessible to workers in a workplace that's hostile to union organizing. The cycle of slow striking throughout history is constantly rotating. Management imposes conditions workers don't like or speeds up the pace of production to make more money for the company And workers react. They slow down or they strike. And then managers catch on and try to make it more difficult for workers to have power. It's a frontier of control between workers and managers. And as workers became organized, they were able to more effectively assert 
their interest, whether it was in the piece rate or it was in the speed of the line. As unions gained power, they were doing the negotiating with management, and slow strike tactics like breaking machines with your shoe became less widespread. But their spirit continues today in organized and unofficial, rarely documented slow strikes that happen every day all around us. After the break, what happens when Adam begins his own conscious withdrawal of effort? Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Sometimes you need a change of pace. That includes your finances. Get smart with your budgeting with financial tips straight from the nerds. NerdWallet's trusted experts will set future you up for success by untangling today's web of financial misinformation. Learn about smart investing strategies, tax planning pointers, and travel tips to save on a fun family getaway, maybe somewhere tropical. Spring ahead for smarter decisions in 2024. Follow NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. The first day that Adam decided he was going to slow down, he sat in his car in the parking lot before going into work, and in his head, he told himself, I will not rush. When I have to go get cash from the vault to refill the drawer, I will walk like I normally walk. When a customer seems impatient, I will hold steadfast to my pace. I will focus on the customer I am helping and try not to think about the long line behind them. He would talk himself up, but as soon as he was in front of a customer, he would find that robot corporate mode came back quickly. Without thinking, he'd be rushing. And then so I would have like this little voice of reason chime in and be like, it's okay. You you don't have to like rush through this. Take a deep breath, slow down a little bit. It's going to be okay. Like if they have to wait for an extra minute, that's okay. You would think that slowing down would be easy, but there were these surprising ways he found it almost harder at first. In part because he'd been rushing through customer interactions for so long that he knew how to do it in a sort of autopilot. It had turned into muscle memory, backed up by a lifetime of programming about the value of hard work and ambition. So in order to slow down, he had to be so aware. Before, it it probably would have been like, oh, I'm so sorry, just got to get some more cash for you for this. It'll be just a moment, but we'll get that right out kind of thing. And then now it's like, hey, it's going to be just a moment. I've just got to get somebody to help me with this and, and and we'll get it taken care of. It sounds subtle. Basically, he was trying not to apologize or promise speed. Internally, Adam was trying to feel less anxious. So half the battle, surprisingly to him, was that he had to change his own feeling about it. But did you, at the beginning, did you feel kind of guilty about 
like working slow? I I think a little bit, yeah. Like if I didn't go fast with this customer to help the next person, then that means my coworker had to potentially help that person. So in a sense, it's almost like I was having other people kind of pick up the slack for me. And to top it all off, in the back of his head, he had this nagging sense that all those years he'd given so much, he was throwing them away. I had put in a lot of time of my life into into this place. And so there was definitely that like attachment of like I had worked hard to like get to the point I was at. And so to like let that go was kind of frustrating. He knew he was probably giving up any chance of advancement, but he hoped he wasn't giving up his job. He wasn't in a place financially for that. He and his wife were paying a mortgage and he had some hefty loan and credit card debt to pay off. So in the early days of his slowdown, he felt less physically tired, but had this new kind of mental fatigue. Slowing down took practice. It took a few weeks, maybe a month, before it started to come more naturally. And once it did, it was paying off in the ways he'd hoped. He didn't feel constant anxiety, and he was getting home from work with a little more energy. And his slowdown started to rub off in some ways. Like if he and a coworker went to the vault together to get money, and now he would do it slowly. Then it kind of made them not rush either. They kind of saw that I wasn't like trying to fly through the process. And so it kind of gave them no reason to do the same. And it kind of started to change the vibe in the branch. They were all burnt out and looking for relief. One of his coworkers told me it was kind of the jumping off point for everyone to also just let go. There was still the same amount of work, but the mood shifted from stressed out to sometimes downright silly. Like on one particularly busy day, Adam's coworker went to lunch. And when she came back an hour later and saw that things hadn't calmed down at all. She walks back and just kind of like sighs and she starts singing the, um, <laughs> the, we work hard for the money, so hard for the money, oh. Like, start singing that song. <laughs> it became a refrain they would sing to each other whenever it got insanely busy. But even as the mood picked up at the bank, as we know from history, management tends to respond to slowdowns. As part of his slow strike, Adam had pretty much stopped turning in reports he was expected to and documenting his employee coaching. There just wasn't time, and he was no longer willing to stress himself. And over time, his managers did start to notice. They'd sit him down and ask where the reports were. And he'd try to explain that he didn't have time to submit the report last week because they were so understaffed, and he ended up having to cover for people at the teller counter. And they would say, Yeah, well, that makes sense. But you still have to do it, so, you know, it's like, well, okay, but, like, how are we going to make it work? The solutions they would come up with together were always about Adam, what he could move around or do differently. I know that they're just doing it because that's part of their job role, and that's kind of what they're hearing from their boss who's hearing from their boss. It was kind of like this weird dance, where Adam and his superior both knew that there was no way to magically create more time in Adam's day for him to get everything he'd been saddled with done. But it was like they were pretending there wasn't another way to help relieve Adam and his coworkers. To Adam, the solution was obvious. 
they have every capability of hiring another person to kind of fill in and get some of those things done at a more reasonable pace. And especially when uh, a lot of that is just helping customers to have another person there to help throughout the day. So there's less stress for the employees and less of an impact on the customers. Like it, it makes sense to me. So we did run Adam's story by a spokesperson for the bank, and they said COVID did lead to some staffing constraints, but they worked to make adjustments so that they were adequately staffed. They also said they offered mental health resources and gave extra cash payments to some employees throughout the pandemic. But after nearly a year of pandemic-induced changes and multiple conversations with his superiors about how badly he needed more help, Adam felt it was clear that nothing he did was going to change the way this global corporate bank operated. Which is how Adam ended up where we began this story. In the drive-through, manning all four lanes by himself and thinking he was having a heart attack. That was the day he realized that even with this practice of slowing down, it was just going to keep piling on. He could slow strike all he wanted, but nothing was going to change. So that's when he started contemplating the ultimate strike. I just had this final like acceptance moment of like, what's going on at work doesn't matter. Like, I don't care anymore. I, if the customers get upset, I don't care. If the job's not getting done, I just don't care. Like I just, I was done. And so I knew that whatever happened, I wasn't gonna be working at this place anymore. He wanted to quit on the spot and walk out right then, but that would have been too risky financially. He had to stay another six months while he refinanced his home. And on his way out, he started really slowing down and preaching the gospel of slow down to his coworkers, trying to validate to them, this is unreasonable and you too have options. Like one day a teller needed a manager to sign off on something for a customer. Another manager had already denied to because it could look bad. And Adam's coworker was like, just have Adam do it. He said, If Adam cared any less, he'd be dead. Adam took this as a compliment. I was a little proud of that because I think everybody was in agreement that like, yeah, Adam, Adam doesn't give a shit about anything anymore. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of don't. <laughs> and, yeah. and then at the same time, too, it kind of opened up this door of having a conversation of why that is. And I made a point to, you know, to let this person know that, like, I, I used to care. I just don't anymore. Adam kind of felt like he discovered this secret. Like, there's an escape hatch, a way to preserve your mental health in the face of all this stress. And he wanted to share it with his coworkers, especially the people that reminded him of how he'd once been, hungry for success and trying to prove themselves to the company. A few months after that day at the drive-thru, once his finances were more solid, Adam turned in his two-week notice. He was done. Well, almost. Corporate culture had one last punch for him, a final performance review. He got a copy of it via email. It included the previous five years of his reviews. So it was almost like taking a field trip through his corporate career. He scanned down the pages, ranking him on a scale from zero to five. His first few years, fours, more fours. And when he got to his last year there, twos and threes, more twos, needs improvement. And in one last surprise, seeing those twos and threes, it stung. Yeah, which is, it's silly, isn't it? Like that, 
I because I was officially like getting ready to be done. Yeah. But like seeing this like, I guess negative feedback. There was part of me that was like really I guess bitter about it. Even though he'd been willing to lose his job, he still felt a little conflicted about getting those bad marks. But in another sense, he could see those reviews as progress. His earlier glowing reviews, he got those by working himself to the bone. He'd earned those twos and threes by saying, enough. Were they signs he'd done poor work at the bank, or that he'd done great work for himself and his mental health? The one thing Adam knew he would miss was his coworkers. So on his last day... I got like a farewell package of just kind of some goodies for everybody. And I went to each location in town, dropped it off, said goodbyes to people, uh, gave a lot of hugs, uh, held back a lot of tears. (laughs) For now, Adam is living off some savings, racking up a little more credit card debt than he'd like, and taking some time off to do more creative stuff. He and his wife have been recording a podcast, and he's been working on music. But eventually, he'll need to look for another job. When that day comes and that I have to go back into the workforce to make it ends meet, that my mindset with it's going to be completely different than it has been with any other job. And it's going to be what's best for me and my well-being and not necessarily what's going to be best for that company. And I'm not going to overwork myself and try to work my way up the ladder for their benefit. In the wake of everything, Adam's been asking himself, what do I owe my employer? My body? My health? And really, these are questions a lot of people have been asking themselves lately. Of course, the stakes vary from job to job. For a lot of workers, slowing down may not feel possible. But in the past couple years, we have seen a wave of workers abruptly quitting and treating their jobs as interchangeable as their jobs treated them. It's been called the Great Resignation. Toby Higby, the labor historian I talked to, feels like the Great Resignation is a callback to earlier times where workers took back control with those tactics like breaking their machinery. Meanwhile, companies keep finding new tactics to ensure productivity. Take algorithmic control, where robots track workers' output. It's a common thing in the gig economy. Like, one example is how Amazon uses an app to track their delivery workers' every move. Workers are still finding creative ways within their means to exert their power, sometimes individually, sometimes collectively. And in a job market where employers are scrambling for labor, you could say today's equivalent of throwing your shoe into the machinery can look like, well, just not showing up. Before we go, I want to leave you with something Adam made while reflecting on his time at the bank. Remember how his coworkers would sing to make each other laugh through the chaos? Here's a rendition of one of his favorites, a song from the movie The Wedding Singer, called Somebody Kill Me, Please. He made it for fun, just to share with his ex-coworkers. When I was new, you were nice to me. You said I could work here happily. And when you paid me, I liked how it felt. You said I would work 
That story was from our producer, Phoebe Untermann. If you have any thoughts about this episode or just want to share your own story about work or money, you can always reach me and the team at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. Also, I want to keep reminding you about our newsletter. It comes out every Friday, and I usually write about what's on my mind. And the team shares some favorite and very interesting things they're reading, watching, and listening to. There's a lot of good stuff in there. You can sign up for that at marketplace.org slash comfort. This episode was lead produced and hosted by Phoebe Untermann. It was also produced by Marielle Seguera. And the episode got additional support from me, Rima Grace, and producers Camila Kerwin and Peter Balanon Rosen. Zoe Saunders is our senior producer. Our editor is Karen Duffin. Marquette Green is our digital producer with help from Tony Wagner. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. And our theme music is by Wonderly. All right, I'll catch y'all next week. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy.